I want to start by directing your attention to uh, Titus 3. So if you take your Bibles, let's look there for a moment. Let's just rehearse the gospel to ourselves. Um, and then we will pray and, and we'll just dive right in today. We have a lot to cover um, as we consider how to interpret the Bible. Titus 3, starting in the verse 3. Paul says to the believers in uh, where Titus is at in, in Crete, and he includes himself, he's reminding um, believers, he's reminding us what we once were before Christ. He says in verse 3, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Those are appropriate um, descriptions of us, former descriptions of us that is important for us to remind ourselves of. Paul's reminding himself that this is what he once was, that what they once were. Um, there's a tension in your Christian life um, to stand at a dividing point where it's important to look forward and it's important to recognize what God has made you into now in Christ and to look forward. Um, but it's also important to make sure that you look back. <coughs> And that you recognize and remember and n never forget what you once were. Um, and that's what Paul's starting with. Um, so I just want to encourage you, man, to, to remind yourself of, of the foolishness that was in you before Christ. Um, the remnants of disobedience and deception that still linger in your flesh. You are no longer a slave to sin, however, but you were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Lust and pleasure spoke as a master, and all you could do was say, yes, master. That's all you could say. And you spent your life in malice and envy, wicked thoughts towards others, hateful, evil thoughts towards others. You were hateful. You were hating one another. And then, verse 4, huge contrast, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. He saved us. Right? And there's your main verb in the whole section. He saved us. When did he save us? Um, well, when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. Um, that's when he saved us. It took the kindness of God coming and penetrating into my life that's described in verse 3. Um, it took his love coming and appearing uh, in the midst of all of that. That's when he saved us. How did he save us? Well, verse 5, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. How could people characterize in verse 3 do righteousness? Well, we try. 
as foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, full of malicious uh, malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. It crosses our minds to try to be righteous to get God's attention. It does. How can we possibly do that, though? If we wait, if we are hoping on God saving us on the basis of what we, as people in verse 3, can try to do on, in, uh, in terms of righteousness, I mean, we're going to, there is no hope for the sinner. But he saved us rather according to his mercy. God's just merciful. Salvation is dependent upon him being a merciful God. They're saved by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God must come and regenerate us in a cleansing way and renew us, make us new. And the Spirit is the one whom he poured out upon us richly. God is not stingy and he doesn't give you something that he likes. He gives you himself. He gives you the Holy Spirit and he gives them richly. We don't have a stingy God. And so God the Father gives richly His Holy Spirit, and He doesn't give it to you via mail, UPS, uh, through an angel, but it comes through His Son. So God the Father giving His Spirit richly through His Son. That's how God saves. It's the Godhead completely committed to one another to save someone like you, described in verse 3. Someone like me. So that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There's not much there for you and I to do except to receive, to trust, to look away from ourselves and, and count on God doing what he says he did at the cross of his son, in the empty tomb of his son. <clears throat> so remember what you were and remember how God saved you saved me. So with that in mind, let's pray. Let's ask. Let's go to this God who is kind and is loving. This God who has mercy. This God who is not stingy. Let's go to him and let's pray. Okay? God of kindness and God of great love, thank you for not waiting for me or for any of these men here to straighten up their lives. Or the, the, the brutal fact is that we, it would never cross our minds to straighten up our lives. At least straighten them up in a manner that is pleasing to you because we could never do that. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. What can a dead man do? We were enslaved to sin. We had no power to break its slavery and we had no desire to break its slavery. We loved that slavery. We were rushing headlong into our own deception and destruction and desires. And you are the God of kindness and love and mercy who came and intervened and plucked us out of the rushing stream that was headed to hell. You picked us up. You, by your spirit, renewed us, washed us, regenerated us, you turned us around as new creatures and you put us back in that raging river and you said, swim upstream. Pursue me. And Father, sometimes we will be, we will be, the, we'll be the first to confess that 
our striving for holiness seems to be so hard. It seems to be so difficult. It seems to be so wearisome. We labor and we strive to put another stroke out in front, and we feel like sometimes we haven't moved a bit. And we also confess to you that there are sometimes we grow weary to the point where we quit pursuing Christ, and we become lazy. We become neglectful of our hearts. We do not utilize the, the new uh, abilities and equipping and power that you have given, and whenever we stop swimming in that stream, we rush in the wrong direction. There is no staying neutral. There is no staying um, steady in one spot. We are either striving forward, painfully so by your grace and by your spirit sometimes, or we are going the wrong direction. Sin is that, um, still has that kind of a lingering effect upon us. So God, we are here this morning just to remind ourselves of what we once were. We are here to remind ourselves of our great need for your powerful grace in our lives today through Jesus. And we are here to remind ourselves that we need your Spirit's fullness and power in our lives so that we might even, if we labor by your grace and by the power of your word with your Spirit's help, if even if in all that labor we we just inch our way forward, Lord, that is a new creation. That is something that could never have happened before, and it is a gift from you, and we are thankful, Lord, that we can wrestle and we can strive against our sin, and we can wrestle and strive for holiness of life in Jesus. That was something we could never get before. And so I pray, Lord, for strength. I pray for encouragement. I pray that you would increase our hope so that we might... um, Continue to press on. And Father, we greatly look forward to the day when He, your Son, will appear and He will come and get us. Or we even look forward to death, which is has only become sleep to us now. And it is a, a gateway to the ultimate rest that you have in mind for us when we will be freed from sin altogether. And we will see our precious Savior's face. We will not have to trust anymore. Faith will become sight. Lord, until that day, will you please give us encouragement and strength to walk in holiness of life. We are completely dependent upon you, and we are completely dependent upon you this morning to even think about how to interpret your Bible. And I pray, Lord, that you would come near to us, that you would meet with us, that we would um, feel our dependence upon you and that your presence near to us would uh, be great encouragement. Be with these men. Help them to strive onward in their reading of the Bible, devotionally so. Help them to not um, miss their hearts drawing near to you when they open the Bible. Pray, Lord, for them that they would be men who would love to bring the gospel and the word of God to bear in their homes where they live the people that they live with. I pray that uh, upon doing so, Lord, that you would only strengthen their gospel ministry in the local church, in this church, and in their workplace, their neighborhood. Father, I pray for these men that you would press upon them strongly a a desire to be a qualified man, either as deacon or elder in, in the local church. I pray that they would 
long for that. Be prayerful towards it. Be intentional towards that. God, have your way in them. Raise them up to be strong leaders in their homes and in the church. Bring about a a huge and bountiful harvest of of godly, spiritual, qualified, well-equipped men for Grace Bible Church, Lord. So this church will never lack for a a solid leadership base so that churches planted from here will have an abundance of leaders ready to go so that missionaries, new ones, will be sent out and supported and that these men themselves might even be pastors and elders and missionaries. That's our prayer. Because what you are ultimately about in this day is the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ through the local church for the purpose of establishing more local churches so that the gospel can continue to the ends of the earth so that men and women and boys and girls of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people will be gathered around the throne of Jesus singing praises, worshiping Him, exalting Him. Thank you for your grace in our lives. Help us, Lord, this morning to see all that you want us to see in regards to interpreting Scripture. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I will um, let you know that there may be times today where I will uh, completely blank out mentally. Uh, I don't even know what day it is. Uh, it is, but it's good to be home, and uh, I don't want to fly that far again. That's just, there's nothing pleasant about that. I mean, it's like exciting for like the first half hour. This is great. <laughs> the next 17 hours are just brutal. So, anyway, sleep is a good thing. Sleep is a good thing. I look forward to getting more of it in the days to come. Let's take your quote this morning. We are going to move on in... Um, uh, working through that handout that I gave you guys last time. And uh, we're going to pick up with the 12 principles of interpretation that we're going to cover. But this was a very interesting um, article. Justin Taylor is a, um, a blogger. He's probably, between him and Tim Challies and Al Mohler, are probably the, the three biggest Christian, solid Christian, evangelical, reformed, uh, you know, theologically speaking, uh, bloggers that are out there. They will help you um, if you go to Justin Taylor's website or his blog site that's on the Gospel Coalition website, or, or you know, these guys will help inform you of what's going on in the Christian world, alert you to good books to read, bad books to avoid, uh, even just looking at events of the world through a, a, a worldview that's biblical. These guys are great. A couple of years ago, in, in um, November of 09, N.T. Wright, who is a, a theologian, pastor in England, uh, he's in the past has written some really helpful things, and his thoughts on justification are completely uh, something to avoid. Uh, and he wrote a book on justification, and um, there's a whole arena of theological thought out there on justification called A New Perspective on Paul. Uh, if you've never heard of it, um, I don't think you necessarily have to go start investigating it. Uh, but it is something to be very, very careful of, to be very wary of. And um, N.T. Wright is right at the front of the line leading a whole host of people in that direction. Uh, so he wrote a book on justification. Um, many 
solid guys on uh, have reacted to it um, and have tried to respond to it. Piper is one, and he has written a book that's basically just a response to N.T. Wright's view of justification. And what um, David Mathis is doing here in this quote is he's um, he's comparing the way that Piper uses scripture compared to the way that N.T. Wright uses scripture. And in reading this little uh, excerpt from David Mathis's uh, review of N.T. Wright and the way that Piper responds to him is helpful for us learning how to view scripture and how not to view scripture, okay? So we're going to be reading David Mathis's conclusions about the way he sees N.T. Wright using scripture. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because it could be confusing what I'm reading here. I just want to make sure you all follow along. So here are the closing paragraphs of David Mathis's um, ideas on Wright, N.T. Wright and John Piper. Exegesis. Okay, stop. <laughs> Got to understand what exegesis is, okay? Here's what exegesis is. It's hermeneutics applied to the Bible. Hermeneutics are rules for interpret- interpreting the Bible. You come up with a set of rules for interpreting the Bible. That's hermeneutics. When you take those rules and you apply them to Scripture, that's called exegesis. Okay? Hermeneutics is not the same thing as exegesis. Okay? Hermeneutics are the rules that you use to interpret the Bible, and when you put them into effect on a passage, that's called exegesis. Okay? Do you understand? Now, exegesis, or hermeneutics applied, has two different flavors for Wright and for Piper. Piper, now watch this, he wrestles word by word, proposition by proposition, and then paragraph by paragraph. Wright, on the other hand, moves much quicker through large chunks of Paul's thought, refers frequently to whole chapters and paragraphs, and quotes phrases, often as technical terms, seemingly removed from their immediate text. Uh, a technical term is, is nothing more than a, a, like a word or a phrase that when you see it, it always means the same thing, no matter which author is using it. Okay, te- And there's not a whole lot of them, but a technical term is it's rigid in its meaning. It doesn't have a, a range of meaning. It just means that it has one meaning always, all the time, and Wright is doing that with some phrases in ways that he shouldn't. Next sentence. It is surprising that Wright would remind us that the text is the text, page 249, when he has dealt so little with the actual biblical text in its context. For this reason, Wright's exegetical chapters are a serious disappointment, and here's probably the most important thing I'd want you to get. As his exegesis proves to be a kind of hovering above the text. That's huge. When I first read that, a hovering above the text... The first thought that came to my mind is, oh, that's really bad for him to do that. The second thought that came to my mind was, oh my goodness, I think I do that. When you kind of just refer, well, that's not what Paul means in Romans. You're hovering. Because you're not anchored down into any particular passage, verse, proposition, or anything. You're hovering above. Well, the Bible doesn't teach that. Stop hovering, get into a passage. Okay? And that's what he's saying N.T. Wright does. By moving over big chunks of passages at a time, you're hovering. It's like flying at 30,000 feet, pointing down, saying, oh, that can't mean that. You've got to get down into the ground. 
of Scripture, rarely, if ever, landing while supplying his own meaning for a phrase here and there that contributes to a coherent whole but neglects to explain the connections between Paul's propositions and paragraphs. Does Wright not see that the discussion cannot go forward if he will not convincingly engage Paul on Paul's own terms but instead keeps the text at arm's length? Listen, you've got to do that with every author. You have to engage the author on the author's terms, not your terms, his terms. That is a huge interpretation principle to hang on to. Okay? And to not keep the text at an arm's length, you get as close as you can to that text and let it lead you through its meaning on its own terms. The student who takes the time to work through Wright's exegesis with both a good English translation and a Greek text nearby will see that Wright's claims do not follow Paul's text proposition by proposition. Wright has selected a few words, phrases, and so-called technical terms, accounted well for them in his system, and then made sweeping claims about whole chapters and paragraphs relating one to another without pausing sufficiently to mind the conjunctions and show that Paul is thinking the same way. So he's making an assumption about the way Paul is writing and he hasn't done any work to actually show that Paul is thinking the same way that he is. That's not the way you do it anyway. You find out the way that Paul is thinking and then you make your thinking be that way. You understand? You're not trying to get Paul to say what you want him to say and you're not trying to show that Paul is thinking what you're thinking. You're trying to get your thinking to match Paul's thinking. Right? It's just backwards. Reading Wright with Paul's text open reveals that Wright is not yet demonstrating that he can explain Paul as well as, as well as his most careful critics. Despite the impressive fact that he has published yet again, it does not seem that justification, the book justification will advance the discussion or benefit Wright's esteem at present or long term. Wright has done much outstanding work in the past and it is a shame that he may have sullied his name with his disappointing volume. <coughs> Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty harsh critique of him, and it's a, it's a necessary one. Um, it is a wrong view of justification. It is a justification by works that is dressed up in a, uh, a new garment for today. Listen, these are key phrases. Word by word, proposition by proposition, then paragraph by paragraph. Okay, engage Paul on Paul's terms. Engage the, the biblical author on the biblical author's terms. Do not hover above the text. Don't keep the text at arm's length. And remember last time we talked about where is the controlling line of authority? For right, where is the controlling line of authority? It's not in the text. It's in him. And he's got an agenda that he wants to push forward on justification. And he then goes to the text to back up his view. <coughs> Alex. So when I hear that, not, not to get um, views on justification, but I hear this and I think, how am I reading my Bible? Yeah. And I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, please, I sort of think of it as, as two ways. So if I'm reading through the Bible in a year, mm-hmm. I'm, I don't want to use the term covered, but I'm not... I'm not going word for word right. phrase. Right. But when I go to a small group and we're working on a passage in small group, that's when I would start to yeah. go word by word. So am I correct? There's two yeah. different ways to... Yeah. If um, reading your Bible and like in a year where you're moving faster and studying a, a passage 
bit by bit, are two very different animals that need to be in, present in your life consistently as often as possible. Um, if all you ever do is read, you won't be able to go word by word, proposition by proposition, paragraph by paragraph, book by, you know, you won't be able to, to do that. So you want to. Now, um, but what, but that reading of the Bible that way is not what Wright is doing. Wright is uh, trying to give a defense of a, of a theological position and he needs to be down in words and he needs to be down in texts and paragraphs and he's not. He refuses to get down into it because that doesn't, if he does, <laughs> it's not going to be helpful. Uh, then you have to start basically saying, well, that's not what Paul means by what he says. Um, and you have to start, you know, I think that's where he's going with technical terms that he, he shouldn't go with. But um, you want both of those in your life. Because there's, there's, there are benefits, and this is a little bit different than what, what Wright's doing, but if we just talk about reading compared to studying, I think most of the guys that I've known, the way that they've interacted with the Bible is primarily studying. They just like to study. You know, take a passage and tear it apart. You know, whether or not it gets put back together again is, you know, it doesn't matter. We're just tearing it apart. It's fun, right? I can remember tearing apart my Pontiac Bonneville 400 and with my friend putting stuff back together and having extra stuff left over. <laughs> you know, it's kind of important to put everything back. Okay? Um, so, you know, to then say you need to read the Bible in a year and you're going to need to read at least four chapters a day, is like drives them. It's hard to make that adjustment because they think the only way to interact with the Bible is by tearing it apart. Okay, and and it's an excellent way to work through the Bible by studying word by word, proposition by proposition, whatever. But you're, there are some things you're never going to get. And we talked about this illustration before. Like if you if you're going to go settle and develop a piece of land, and it's a significant piece of land. Should you fly over it at 10,000 feet, 5,000 feet, or should you walk through it with a GPS device? You see, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to pit two very good things against each other that shouldn't be pitted against each other. It's the wrong question. It's not the way you ask the question. What do you do? You do both. You need to see it in a big picture way of what's going on. And, but then you need to get down and you need to map specifics because you're going to be setting foundations. You're going to be building roads. You're... And you can't do that from 10,000 feet or 5,000 feet or whatever. You've got to walk down through it. So the question is, is not which one should you do. The, the, the point is do both. And if you used to do studying every single day because that's what you did and you would do it for an hour of your, of your day and you just loved it, but you haven't read through the whole Bible, um, you're not probably, you might have time in your life to be able to keep doing the studying for an hour every single day and then plus add another 30 minutes on top to read four chapters a day. You might, but let's say you don't have that kind of time. What, do you, what should you do? You should maybe say, well, you know what? Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, I'm going to study. Tuesdays, Thursdays, Saturdays, and Sundays, I'm going to read as much as I can. You blend it. Do both. During the week, it doesn't have to be every single day that you do it, but come on some kind of a plan of an attack on, for God's word that incorporates both ideas, because you need both. Um, so yeah, I, 
you, you'll, you won't be able to wrestle with proposition by proposition if you're, if you're just reading. Um, but if you're only wrestling with proposition by proposition, um, you're going to need to live a long time to get through all of the Bible. Okay? All right. Let's open up your, uh, your uh, handout from last time. And I want to work on, uh, we're going to work through the 12 principles of interpretation. I think that's on page five. Page five. We walked through the two wrong ways. We some presuppositions first on page three, right? And then we walked through two wrong ways to interpret scripture. The allegorical method is wrong, and what it means to me method is wrong. The right way is to interpret carefully and normally. Um, a key phrase that you want to be thinking of as you're studying and even as you're listening to men preach the Bible or if you're listening to a sermon online, you want to ask yourself the question, for this preacher, for this teacher, for me as I'm studying, where is the controlling line of authority? Is it clear through what I'm saying that my controlling line of authority is actually in words on these pages or is the controlling line of authority in an idea that I have? outside of the pages of Scripture in my theological system. And that's where you want to be careful um, and make sure that your controlling line of authority is in the text. These principles of interpretation help you stay down in the text. It's like being on the moon. If you don't have weight on you, you're going to leave it. And what you need is these kinds of rules of interpretation are kind of like weights that will keep you down in the text, force you to deal with the text, uh, keep you from slipping out and getting off into thoughts that start to stray from Scripture. It keeps you back down in, okay? So here's the first one. You're going to see, by the way, for these 12, lots of overlap of ideas and stuff. Tom? So if I would characterize your preaching, I don't hear a lot of Scott Maxwell's life and application. I mean, that where is the controlling line of authority? Do you, do you tend to stay away from that just you stay focused on the I have no, I personally have no desire to, uh, I can't think of what, what more, what better thing could be spoken of when a guy stands up and starts to preach than the Bible. Um, we've had, we had a, we've had a, we had a couple leave this church because I wasn't revealing enough about my own personal life. Yeah, I'm not like, and I'm just like, that was a big piece of the puzzle. Yeah. <laughs> that didn't come out. One thing I asked that question in my interview. Seven and a half years ago, that would have been helpful. Huh? I don't know. That changed my whole life right now. Yeah. <laughs> There's a time and a place for stuff to come out, Tom. But I just, I mean, I look, it's not wrong for somebody to become autobiographical at some point. I'm not saying that. But um, I just, I, I don't. There's nothing more interesting than what's in the pages of Scripture. And you should, in my opinion, only go autobiographical in a time and in a way that actually serves the idea of what's going to come out from the text. And if it ends up being a distraction to it, well, then don't do it. Um, so anyway, I, there's nothing more interesting than God's Word, and that needs to come out. Let's talk about the clarity of Scripture, number one. 
The Bible can be understood because God meant it to be understood. That is, listen, memorize that like it's a Bible verse, okay? The Bible can be understood because God meant it to be understood. Isaiah 45, verses 18 and 19, I am the Lord, there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the works. Why did he reveal them? So that we may what? Be confused? No, so that we can observe all the words of this law, Moses said. Okay? Uh, God spoke clearly. Not everything in the Bible, though, is easy to understand. And Peter makes that clear that Paul has written some things that are really hard to understand. However, as Deuteronomy 29 29 indicates, God revealed his word to be understood and lived. The revealed things, the words of the law, are ours. That means we study God's word, get this, expecting to discover a coherent message. Can I give you one of the reasons why we do that? Because that's just the way the language works. And that's what we expect when we communicate to people. When you talk to your wife, when your wife talks to you, when your roommate talks to you, when your kids speak to you, when you speak to your kids, the idea of language is I'm going to communicate in such a way that I expect you to understand me. Nobody purposefully has an idea that's important that they must reveal, says, you know, I'm going to see if I can make this as unclear as I possibly can. The only time we do that is when we want to wiggle our way someplace else. Okay, But when we're communicating, trying to reveal an inward thought, an inward um, idea that needs to come out, we, we, we think of the best way to do that. Now, we are flawed, and sometimes we don't do that very well. And so then we have to take a second run at it, sometimes a third run at it, and even more sometimes, right? But God is not that way. He has not revealed everything to us. The secret things belong to God. Okay, He has revealed some things over time as mysteries revealed through Paul. But the things that he has revealed are clear. And he revealed in such a way that he intended to be understood. Um, and you have to begin with Scripture in such a way that you understand that. Um, this is a presupposition also. Okay, Everyone in regular communication speaks to be understood. You expect your hearers to understand you. You have failed in your communication if you have communicated in such a way that you don't understand. Um, the clarity of Scripture. Scripture is clear. Um, when we do come across uh, theologically obscure passages, we must give precedent to the clear section of Scripture that address that issue. So you have to be dependent upon other passages of Scripture that are more clear to help you understand more theologically obscure passages. There are some that are hard to understand, no doubt. Okay? Number two, the accommodation of revelation. And what we mean by this is God accommodates what he's revealing to our intellect. Okay? God revealed this truth in terms that human beings can understand. For example, the scripture was written in well-known human languages. This is great. I love this. There's no secret language out there that, that God revealed himself through that you have to go someplace and dig it up and find it and then get the code and the key for it to unlock it. He picked some of the easiest, most common, understood languages of human history. Hebrew, Aramaic, and Koine Greek. I mean, that's just a common man's Greek language. Um, and God did that. That tells you something about what God thinks. I want this understood by the simplest of minds. 
Praise God for that, for me, for some of you. Um, I didn't say all of you. But when God's word speaks of infinite or divine concepts, it does so in terms that we can relate to. That's where God sometimes will accommodate. For example, 2 Chronicles 16.9 says God's eyes move throughout the earth. That doesn't necessarily mean that God the Father, a spirit being, has physical eyes. He doesn't. But God knew that eyesight is the most perceptive of the human senses. Therefore, he describes his infinite perceiving abilities that way. Accommodation means that God stoops to our level, describing himself in ways that we can understand. Listen, when you accommodate your language for a little child, when you're teaching Next Generation Ministries and you have to use language that's down on their level, the whole reason you do that is because you want to be understood. Accommodation and using things like, well, the eyes of the Lord, you don't do that to become, to make it fuzzy. God's whole intent in accommodating is to be even clearer. So accommodation is a step to take in which you can clarify your language, your meaning, so that it comes forth. And God oftentimes does that. Um, Number three, one meaning of a text. This is huge. Although a text may have many different applications, it has only one meaning. The meaning of the original human author moved by the Holy Spirit. Okay? Um, We talked about this a little bit last time. Do you guys remember? Um, Consider, for example, the command, do not steal. For the 10-year-old, that might apply, keyword, apply, to shoplifting. Shoplifting a candy bar. For an adult, it might apply to doing non-work-related activities while his employer is paying him to work. Okay? Those are two different applications. However, there is only one meaning to the text. Don't take something that is not yours or not yours to use in that way. Now, if we have some time at, towards the end, we can um, talk about uh, the New Testament's use of the Old Testament a little bit and whether or not um, Old Testament passages actually have more than one meaning. Um, I am of the conviction that they do not. I think there is only one meaning that was given. And then what a New Testament writer does in quoting or alluding or referencing a theme in that verse creates a new meaning uh, in the New Testament. And you have to be very careful to not say necessarily that they're exactly the matter. You have two different meanings for the passage. We'll talk about that if you guys want to at the end. Um, I have a couple of examples ready from Ephesians on that. But I don't want to do it here. I think we can get bogged down too long. Uh, so we'll try to get through everything and come back to that, okay? One meaning in a text, okay? Number four, harmony of Scripture. Even though written over a period of 1,500 years by more than 30 human authors, the Bible agrees with itself amazingly so. Or not so amazingly when you consider it's one divine author, God. It's easy for him to do. Because the Scripture was spoken by the God who knows everything and never lies, the Bible does not contradict itself. Now, there's a danger, however, lurking in this principle that there's a harmony of Scripture. This is very important. You have to avoid the practice of determining what we believe based on one text and then forcing every other passage to harmonize with that view. For instance, uh, God loves sinners. God loves sinners. 
That's a true statement. Well, let's turn to Psalm 5 for a moment. Psalm 5. In fact, we just saw that, didn't we? In uh, Titus 3, verse 4. But when the kindness of our God appeared and his love for mankind appeared, God loves. No doubt about it. Psalm 5, verse 4. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. He doesn't take any pleasure in wickedness, and evil cannot be found in God anywhere. Verse 5. The boastful, therefore, shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. All right, so wait a minute, time out. Does God love the sinner or does God hate the sinner? Yes. <laughs> yes. Now, in my mind, this little thing in this dome up here, I don't understand how I can love someone and hate someone at the same time. I don't get that. If I force God's mind to a very small space the same size as my dome, then these things don't make sense. But the point is, God, in his infinite character, has the ability simultaneously to hate the sinner, not just the sin, the sinner, and love the sinner at the same time. Do you know how that... There are some of these kinds of themes that you must let both of them equally stand and you don't try to undo the other by the other. You don't try to, oh, no, 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 he doesn't really, what he, what's really meant here in Psalm 5 is that he hates the sin and not the sinner. That's not what it says. It says he hates all who do inequity. Okay? Now, here's why both of them must stand and here's the beauty of it. Some themes like this come to a beautiful connection in the cross of Jesus Christ. God hating the sinner and the sin in his perfect wrath. The one who, it says here, he takes pleasure in no wickedness. And no evil dwells with him and he had to turn his back on his son. His son felt it. His son cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God says, I can take no pleasure in any wickedness. I hate all who do iniquity. And iniquity is all over you. Turned his back on his son. And yet the cross of Jesus Christ is where we see the love of God for sinners. So both of them come together in the cross. Listen, you do not undo the love of God because of his hatred for sinners. And you do not undo the hatred of God towards sinners with his love for sinners. You let both of them stand equally in their passages where it is taught. And you see them both come together, amazingly so, in the cross of Jesus Christ. I think you, what you would want to probably be thoughtful of there is um, there is a there is a love in my opinion, and from what I understand from Matthew five and, and even um, uh, some other passages, 
where God expresses his love for human beings, it's not his saving love. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a common love that he shows towards man because he's the creator. I think Esau experienced that love as the creator God who uh, gave Esau worldly temporal enjoyments, food, rain, cool weather, warmth, fire, things like that. I think Esau, but, but what Paul is bringing out specifically is that he from the womb is never loved in a saving way. Um, I think that's the difference. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you just try to really constrain yourself to the thought that's going on in the, in the author there. Here's another subject. If, if God is good, how can evil happenings be ascribed to him? See, if, if in your mind the only way for God to be good is that he can never be, no evil happenings on earth can ever be ascribed to him because, well, you know, goodness is then compromised in my mind. But if the Bible somehow represents that God in all of his goodness and purity can even have evil happenings much closer to him than I am comfortable with, but it doesn't compromise his holiness, then let it be. Those are hard things to figure out. Lamentations 3, verse 32 and 38 talks about that. Does not both good and evil go forth from God? They're much closer to a sovereign God than, than I personally am comfortable with. But I do not constrain God's relationship with good and evil to my understanding. And if the Bible displays God in such a way that he can be overseeing what evil is going on and not compromise his holiness an ounce, then that needs to stand. And I think that's what's going on in Scripture as well. Mark? I think there's been a lot of that. This is what I love about the Bible. Um, it, it is the only, uh, it brings the only comfort that can be found. Um, listen, if you look very carefully at what Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis 50, you meant it for evil. Now, subject change. But God meant it, what you did that was evil, for good. God meant their evil towards him as good. That puts God pretty close to evil. And yet he's never compromised in his holiness. Listen, you want God close to evil that's happening in the world. You don't want a view of God. You, the Bible doesn't portray a view of God where he is distant. Un, God is over controlling everything, overseeing its beginning and its end. Uh, every ounce of evil that is being done out there is on a leash under God's sovereign control. <clears throat> and the world is in rebellion against him. Evil is fighting against God. Doesn't want God to be God. God 
for whatever reason, does not completely just eliminate evil. It has its purpose to run its course under his sovereign control. Now, there will be a day that comes when evil will no longer uh, exist. Um, Praise God for that. Um, So, Scripture all holds together, but where you perceive there to be mutually exclusive ideas, God's love and God's hate, you must let them both stand and ask good questions about in, in God's economy, in God's mind, in God's nature, if those two things can exist simultaneously without undoing God, just because they can't exist in my mind and in my thinking, I don't understand how that works, doesn't mean that God can't have those existing together. Really. Scott, okay, you're leading us in, this is, you got my question, okay? Sure. It's absolutely clear that God is going to reveal it to us in, in terms that we can relate to. You know, it is not hidden. And it, the text will have one meaning. And, and the Bible agrees with itself, and then it doesn't. In what way does it not? Because that's what you're saying. It doesn't agree with itself in that you know, God hates a sinner and he loves a sinner. No, I actually think it does. It's when it's going to be clear, it's going to be something we relate to, and then all of a sudden it's like, okay, God's mm-hmm. above our thoughts and we can't figure it out because you know, he doesn't go outside of who he is. Yeah, that's a good question. God's, God's clarity um, in his revelation is... His clarity, not my clarity. Okay? Um, So I have to get the mind of God through the Spirit of God to understand the clarity of how God's hate and how God's love can coexist. Um, Again, I don't want to constrain what I understand to be things that can be Coexistent or not coexistent. But you know what I'm saying? I mean, as you started it, you know, the 12 points were interpreted. You know, God's going to be clear to us because He wants to be. He wants to communicate this clearly in terms that we can relate to. He's going to talk down to us because we need to be talked down to. You know, and and the idea that text has one meaning, then we get to that point where all of a sudden, you know, it, it blows us away. It absolutely does. Right? You know what I'm saying? That's, that's, okay, I like this, I like this, but wait a minute, I don't understand this. Yeah. And it's just a good example of how, again, I mean, we, our minds need to be brought under the mind of God. We need his help. Um, and uh, he gives it to those who need it and cry out for it. Um, so that our minds are conformed to the mind of Christ and the mind of God in Scripture. Um Scott, yes. Quick question too. Um, I'm trying to put all this stuff together about J.T. Wright and Piper. Apparently, they came. Apparently, they came somehow. Don't you know? I don't want to wrestle with that. But somehow, both of them came to two different meanings. You know, from this passage that they read, and and. You know, there is one meaning. How do you know if you have the right meaning? Yeah. I would I would debate your first point. Okay. I would not grant you your first point. Okay, that they both came away from a... a both of them had their Bibles open. Yeah. Both of them came up with... Piper came up with one meaning, Wright came up with another meaning, but that doesn't mean that both of them came from... came away with a meaning that 
two different meanings that the text taught. Uh, I, I agree with that yeah. totally. I'm just saying that if, if two people are looking at one text, mm-hmm. and there is, and we know, and, and I, I agree wholeheartedly, there's only one meaning. Mm-hmm. But you have two brothers that are coming away with yeah. two different meanings, and this brother is being very stubborn, saying that this is what it means. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I've done it, my study this way. Mm-hmm. And this brother says, no, this is what it means because I've done my study this way. How uh, simple-minded people, how do we know, you know, what is really the meaning if, you know, there, and, and there is only one meaning. We know that. But yeah. I think it's more of the, you hear different people yeah. say, this means this. Mm-hmm. Okay, you got that because you went through all these little steps. Mm-hmm. And you hear this other guy who is just as strong as the theological mind long ago, and he says this, 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 because I got, and that's how I got this meaning. This. Well, how do you how do you deal with that? Because a lot of times that's what we're dealing with. Right. We're like, you know, we, we get all these guys to say that it means this, and we get a few of these guys or more of these guys to say it means this. Yeah, I think one of the things you do is you do the best you can with the abilities that you can to be as equipped as you possibly can be. I mean, you you have to be. Otherwise, you are you are at the will of every teacher, commentator, pastor, um, and you need to, in in terms of understanding some of these kinds of things here and implementing them and practicing them and sharpening yourself. Uh, with what the Bible says, being more and more aware of what the whole Bible says. Read the whole Bible. Do it every year. Uh, practice these steps of, of studying. Apply these principles of hermeneutics. Do exegesis on passages so that you then have an ability. You won't be able to speak. Uh, it's like one guy speaks in one language and, and you don't understand the language. Your best way of understanding what he's trying to say is to try to get as many words under your belt as you can and how you speak the language, do that. Do everything you can to best equip yourself that, as much as you can um, so that you can then begin to interact as much as you can with what they're saying. Um, ask yourself the question over and over, what's their controlling line of authority? And, and, and just ask yourself, where is he basing his authority in? Does it appear that he is actually interacting with words and propositions and then paragraphs and things like that? Or is he alluding to it and then a big idea develops? And touch it and then a big idea develops. If that's happening, he might be right. He might be absolutely right. But you should say, that left me wanting a little bit. Because when you want, you want to be able to go back to the passage and understand what he did to how we got from there to his position. And so you just want to become as best equipped as you can. Here's another thing that, of God's mercy to us, is that in the, in, the, in the importance of being involved in a local church, God gifts the body in different ways to be able to feed the body, to be able to be the body. God gives teachers. He gives preachers. He gives uh, a level of, of giftedness to be able to help feed the body. Um, I think you put yourself under, uh, I think no matter what church you go to, you, one of the first things on your mind, wherever you're going to go, is how do these elders understand that the Bible should be interpreted and taught? Because I'm going to place my life under that. And with that, I can ask questions. I can move around in that. I may not always agree. But I need to know that. 
because I'm going to be putting my life close to that. Dre. Uh, sorry, not to labor too long on this, but uh, off those themes, just kind of in, in response to you, Jerome, like one of the questions maybe that needs to be asked too when you think of two brothers getting a different interpretation is like how each one of them thinks you should interpret the text. Um, it seems like the biggest issue with Piper and Wright is that they don't they don't agree on how you should approach the scriptures. So it seems like it's going to be kind of hard. You can correct me if I'm wrong. That um, it's going to be kind of hard for us to talk about what the text means if we don't agree. This is how you should interpret the scriptures. Yeah. If you think that we should apply two different kinds of hermeneutic to the text, then talking yeah. about meaning is going to be tough. Yeah, you, it'll be very difficult to agree. And, and I th- look, th- there's there's going to be points where you're just going to ha- there's just going to be disagreement between brothers, and then you have an opportunity to apply the gospel to how you relate to each other. I have some dear friends that I don't, we don't have the same view on on uh, salvation. We don't have the same view on the role of women in the local church. We don't have the same view on the end. Um, and it's all based on the way that we handle scripture. And you know what? Um, you can have all kinds of fellowship and relationship. The, the thing that happens, though, that you have to watch for is that uh, I'm, I'm friends with... Um, with some, some godly men in the valley, uh, and we're dear, we have a dear Christian brother relationship with one another, we probably couldn't serve together as elders in the same church. Because that would just, at a leadership level, the more, it's like, it's like getting married. You know, you can have uh, all kinds of relationship uh, with, with, a, with a woman, with women who have different ideas theologically and biblically. You're going to marry a girl? Oh, you, you need as much unity as you can possibly find um, and, and see if you can work through that to be on the same mind because the relationship, the marriage relationship is a very close one that requires cohesiveness of thought and conviction and, and things like that. Same thing between two men who are going to serve together in God's uh, gospel work just as friends and brothers in Christ, different churches. Uh, no, in the same church. Oh, well, we want to be. We want to try to have even closeness uh, uh, in in eldering in the same pastoring in the same church. Oh, we want to be really close together. And then your differences where you disagree with your brother, it's an opportunity for you to be humble and gracious and not condemning of one another. tend to see um, more divergence when you get towards um, end times kinds of things, how you know how the end comes about. Um, I, I would say that you know how your conviction about how scripture should be handled is really the foundation in that because I think that's when you you know different theological camps then divert from one another is because 
they have a conviction at the foundation level that, you know, prophetic passages can't be interpreted that way as literal or apocalyptic passages like Revelation can't be interpreted literally and, and so your differences occur there at the base level. I, I think they yeah I think Wright and Mathis would disagree probably quite a bit on, on a lot of stuff but that's because of the, the nature I think that Wright of where Wright is but um well, yeah, I, 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 no, I, I love the way that you know, talk about German scriptures, but um, you personally, and I've always thought that, I thought about my own theology, you personally, how much of your theology, because there comes a point where you, you draw conviction, we all draw conviction of our theological views, how much of your theology do you think is correct as much as it can be? And then when we get to heaven, God's going to say, no, you're good here, here, kind of this is there. Because, like you said, a lot of others believe in a bunch of different things, right? And, and, and How much of my theology do I think is right? Yeah, you, yeah. you feel like it's like, you know, I feel solid about this 100%, you know? Yeah. Which of you would hold knowingly to a theological conviction that's wrong? Knowingly. I don't think any of you would. Right. I, so I think I'm right. Yeah. I think I'm right. <laughs> and but the question is, and we talk, this is a great question, by the way. We we um we talked about this last time. Um, here's here's the Bible, okay? Pages of Scripture. If I'm in this passage in the Old Testament, I'm going to draw theological conclusions. I'm going to read and I'm going to draw. Theological conclusions. Okay? So here's, let's, let's say this is biblical meaning, interpretation, and these are theological conclusions. Okay? Um, you're going to continue to do this into the New Testament, and you're going to form. And then what theology does is it tries to kind of connect this, you know, and you're, and you're drawing conclusions theologically. And again, the question is, for each one of us, is where is your controlling line of authority? Okay? Every single one of us, when we read the Bible, we do this. We make conclusions. We do. You can't read the Bible and not make theological conclusions. All of us do it. And it is a foolish to think that any one of us can so wipe the slate of our mind clean when we come back to the Bible that I'm not influenced by my theology. No, I am. I come back to the Bible and I've got this theological conclusion baggage everywhere. I do. And so do you. Everybody does. The question is where is your controlling line of authority? To the best that you can, it must be here. This is your controlling line of authority. What you do is you come back to the Bible and you are coming with your theological conclusions that you've made about God and about man's condition and you must hold those theological conclusions with an open hand. And you say, God, as I come to your word, your word has the opportunity to speak all over again fresh to my conclusions that I've drawn. If I am in error, please show me, correct me. But if we come back 
And we've got a white-knuckled grip on our theological conclusions because that's just what we've done. Then scripture is not going to necessarily have an opportunity to clarify, to correct. And in my opinion, I think we've got, I think there's Christians that do that. And you know what, I do that at times. I'm sure I do that at times. Do I purposefully do that at times? I hope not. I don't want to do that. Do you want to do that? So we, we shepherd our hearts with the kind of thinking that I'm going to hold my conclusions. And I can, I can be sure, I can be certain, as certain as I can be. There's nothing wrong with being, having convictions. I am convinced about the sovereignty of God and salvation. I still need to come back and say, God, as I look at this passage, inform me. Again, controlling my own authority has to exist at the Bible level, the text level, and not the theological conclusion level. Ted. The example you gave last time about your marriage being Michael Rose, ah. well, that, that, that's really helped me with this, dealing with controlling my authority. Is the fact that, I mean, just the example you gave uh, about your marriage being Michael Rose. Yeah, and, and the only one who can clarify what that means, what the point was, is the one who said it. So the controlling line of authority is in is in rooted in the author. It's not rooted in the reader. Okay. Let's keep moving so we can um, make some headway. Yeah. Don't you think though that it's important to understand church orthodoxy and, and non-negotiables? Like I think the five souls. Sure. You, you just don't. That that's not to say absolutely. That's not to say that they're they're not important. For instance, um, you would. I would put a whole bunch of things up here. The five solas. Uh, you can put a whole host of catechisms and uh, confessions that are up here. Uh, you can put, I mean, just keep going. There, there are some excellent things that are driven. I'm there. sorry, not understanding, though, um, like I think of Calvinism and Arminianism, yeah. that both can exist within Orthodox Christianity. But Pelagianism can't. Right. Or right, Calvinism can't. And I think in dealing with other people, too, and understanding it. that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you can put any conclusion or any camp that has over church history been identified as a camp or a group. They're all up here. Um, and, and there are some, like Pelagianism, um, you know, that some of these are heretical. Their conclusions. Um, some of them you and I have held. Some of us have, at points in our Christian life, have, have held that we, we, we've got something to bring to the table. We can do something. And that's why you just keep reading your Bible. You never stop reading your Bible. And you have to hold on to all of these things in such a way that when you come back to the Bible, if a text appears to challenge what you have concluded theologically, you need to let the text speak loudly to it. Um, but are, are there areas where you just don't like I think of uh, uh, N.T. Wright and Piper yeah. on justification you don't budge on that I mean, no not at all um, but, but what well, look there are some things that look I'm not going to I'm not going to encourage anybody to go read anything some plagiarist thought I'm not going to I wouldn't recommend you go read N.T. Wright some of you might read N.T. Wright because you're interacting with some other things that you need to really get to um you, whatever it is, by, by, by saying, I'm trying to figure out how to, what's the best way to say this. By saying hold on to it loosely, I'm not saying like all of a sudden like 
it's negotiable away. That you've got nothing to fear because what you want more than anything is not theological system conclusions. You want the Bible. You've got nothing to fear. Trust the Word of God. Trust the Word of God. Don't trust your system. Trust the Word of God to come back to it and say, I believe that this is this is where I would put myself in this camp, or I'd put myself in this camp, or I'd put myself in this kind of a confession. You've got nothing to fear. Bring it back to the Word of God. And if it sharpens it, cleans it up a little bit, makes you hold to three quarters of it instead of 100% of it, you've got nothing to fear. I just don't trust myself. And all the more reason, yeah. All the more reason for us to study the Word of God in community, and for you to make very sure about where you're having your community at, and the way that the Bible is viewed, and the way that authority is is seen, or the controlling line of authority is in those who are teaching the Bible and teaching others to teach the Bible, um, because there is safety in studying in community together. Because if I'm left to myself, I've got only these this amount of ideas right here. And I need a whole bunch more than that. We're going to talk about um, the last one, which is the checking principle that comes to that. Dave, question. Yeah, I just, I just wanted to make a comment. Um, first of all, I just I appreciate the way that you handle Scripture and how much you love God and His Word. Um, I think if we, number one, is, is, is you being the pastor of our church. I mean, I'm sure there's areas amongst our body where, where we may not agree on everything, but... If we look at, there's very few seminaries in this country that actually uh, believe that God's word is infallible and inerrant. And we can point to guys like MacArthur, a solid seminary like that. We can point to an R.C. Scroll, um, you know, a Piper. Um, you may not agree with them on everything, um, but these are solid guys that love God and they, they, they walk faithfully and I just think and, and just like our resource table at church you, we're fallible um, and I, I, I love your point about I think I'm right I don't purposely make mistakes on purpose I truly believe that this is what God's word says and I love it and for us that haven't been able to experience a seminary and been under solid guys like that you know you put good materials in people's hands and you keep them away from N.T. rights. And I think that's how we grow. Um, I, just, I just think there's, there's solid people, solid material that you can read, and, 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 and obviously the Holy Spirit's our teacher. But um, there's something to be said about guys still that put in a lot of hard work and show that you faithful. Faithful teachers and ministers of the word over time, just like... You separate the schools and the car, those guys will be pointing back to guys in the whatever, like you know, the 1800s, the 1700s, the 1600s. Right. You know, I just think, you know, I just want to throw it out. Yeah. Praise God. Let's talk about number five normal interpretation. This means we read the Bible following the reading practices we would consider normal for any other important document. And then my friend Joel here gives an example. When the office manager sends the maintenance man a memo instructing him to change the flickering fluorescent globe in the hallway, the maintenance man doesn't read a mystical secret meaning about spiritual light into it. He reads the memo normally, and he fetches a new globe and a stepladder, and that's normal interpretation. We need to read our Bibles that way too. 
Normal reading means statements are assumed to be literal unless it's evident that the author was using a figure of speech. Um, because nobody else's opinion matters about the figure of speech more than the author's use of it. I may have an opinion about what I think he's doing as a figure of speech, but it doesn't matter nearly as much at all compared to what the author was intending. For example, when Jesus said, I am the door, we do not conclude that Jesus is made of wood and has hinges. We naturally understand that our Lord was using imagery. Our minds examine the literal meaning, find it unlikely, and accept it as a figure of speech. We should note that even when interpreting figures of speech, though, it is good policy to begin with the literal. So the idea then would be, well, then what is a door? What purpose does a door serve? Having asked that, then we ask, what was Jesus trying to communicate by comparing himself to a door? So the literal function of a door suggests the meaning of the figure. Jesus is the gateway, the opening, the entrance to eternal life. So even when you're using figures of speeches, you, you're still depending on a normal, literal understanding of what the figure of speech is. Um, I had my, an example I was going to give you, and I can't remember where it was, so we'll, we'll just keep moving. Number six, context. One of the most important summary statements ever made regarding uh, Bible interpretation is context determines meaning. This means that a text of scripture is given its true meaning only when it is considered in relationship to the words around it. Um, this is a silly example, but it's a, it's a good one. It helps get the point across. For example, Philippians 2.3a says, do nothing. Some of you would really like that. <coughs> do nothing. Is that justification for laziness? The rest of the verse says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. So when the words surrounding do nothing are considered, it is clear Paul was not condoning laziness. Another example from Philippians, Philippians 4, 6 says, be anxious for nothing. Um, so you have to consider the words around the text. By quoting only a portion of a text, we can completely upend the obvious meaning of the text. Not considering the context would have led us to disobey God if we had applied our interpretation. Now, go to Saul, or I'm sorry, Isaiah 1, because this is a great example of, of a more serious nature. Isaiah 1, verse 10. Uh, Joel says, consider another example. Read Isaiah 1.10. To whom was God speaking? Based on that verse alone, you would conclude God was addressing Sodom and Gomorrah. Isaiah 1.10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. That's clear. It's clear who he's talking to. He's talking to Sodom and he's talking to, to Gomorrah. Now read the, the context. Verse 1 says, This is the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Okay, So he's talking about Israel and Judah, who lived 1,400 years after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, in the time of these kings. Verse 3 says Isaiah was proclaiming God's word to Israel. Verse 8 uses the terminology daughter of Zion on Old Testament, Old Testament phrase referring to Jerusalem. And finally, verse 9 uses the phrases like Sodom and like Gomorrah. Isaiah was making a comparison between Jerusalem of his day and Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities destroyed over a thousand years before. So context is important. If you had picked out only verse 10, you would have concluded Isaiah... Um, have concluded Isaiah chapter 1 is about Sodom and Gomorrah. If your interpretation would have, your interpretation would have been embarrassingly inaccurate. 
So reading the context gives you the true picture. Context determines meaning. Here are three questions to ask to help you grasp the context of a particular passage. Who is writing or speaking? To whom is he writing or speaking? And is there a specific situation addressed in the text that shapes the interpretation? Now take those three questions and apply them to Jeremiah 29.11. How many of you have heard this verse applied for every possible situation and grabbed as a life verse by everybody? Jeremiah 29.11, a favorite soundbite verse for Christian posters and calendars. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not calamity. (laughs) Poor Paul and poor Peter, who only had a life of calamity in the gospel. Um, This verse is often quoted as if it were a general promise to all believers. However, even a cursory examination of Jeremiah 29 shows that this was part of a letter sent by Jeremiah to the Jews who were exiled in Babylon. Reading further, you find that this promise was a part of God's plan to restore the nation of Israel in the future. So the ones to whom Jeremiah was writing in a specific situation, the exile and the promised restoration, limits the meaning of this verse. It is definitely not a sweeping promise that believers will have an easy and calamity-free passage through life. In fact, Jeremiah didn't even experience this. He was hated, harried, thrown in prison, kidnapped, and martyred for his faithful preaching. And we don't know of any converts in Jeremiah's preaching. It certainly didn't apply to him. So context determines the meaning. So when we just grab a verse and we really don't care what it meant to the author, that's very dangerous. Okay? There might be some theological things that are true about God intending good for us. Romans 8. You know? But that's not what is being said in Jeremiah 29. Find a better verse to communicate what it is that you're considering. Okay? Um, Number seven, progressive revelation. This is a very important principle. God revealed his truth over an extended period of time. In other words, Revelation became more detailed as time went on. It progressed. The Bible did not come to us all in one (coughs) shot, and we got Genesis to Revelation. It came over many, many centuries, through many, many different authors, over time. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. The fact that God's revelation has grown more detailed over time means we must avoid the trap of reading later revelation back into earlier revelation. This is so, so important. To not take things that you see to be true here in the New Testament and force them on to a passage way back here in the New Te- uh, Old Testament. Um, a good example. Genesis 12.3, you know this. Um, God said he would bless all the families of the earth through Abraham. When you read much later in the pages of Scripture, in Galatians 3, that God revealed that part of that blessing is salvation by grace through faith in Abraham's seed, singular, who is Messiah. It might be a mistake to assume that Abraham, back here in Genesis 12.3, understood everything that Paul is revealing in Galatians 3. Okay? Part of it was revealed to him in general, maybe shadowy kinds of ways, a vague outline. But over time, God reveals many more specifics that get unfolded. So 
Only as Revelation progressed did God unveil the specifics of his plan. So does Abraham understand Genesis 12.3 with everything that Paul said in Galatians 3? Probably not. Probably not. Um, I don't, you don't even view your own personal histories this way. You don't look back at your early days in Christ and your understandings theologically, biblically, and take your current biblical thought and import it back into, oh, you understood everything then like you do now. You didn't. It was a progressive nature of growing in your understanding. And you let stand back in the early phase of your Christian faith that there was there were some there were some little things you understood. And over time now you have a much fuller thought of how it goes. We don't even read our personal histories that way. Frank. Yeah, I don't believe it needs to be addressed here in this church, but I do think there are people that we do need to address and say, Well God's not done. There's further, further uh, revelation. How would you respond to that? Uh, uh, I would respond to that over a meeting in a long period of time to looking at many different passages. Uh, I, but I, I think I think as you observe the nature of the New Testament as it goes, I think it appears clear that. Um, there doesn't appear to be a whole lot, especially by the time you get to the end of Paul's final letters, it, it appears that there doesn't uh, continue to be further revelation. I am not of the... I'm uncomfortable, for instance, going to 1 Corinthians 13, uh, where Paul refers to um, you know, some of these gifts will cease. I have some dear brothers who... Uh, uh, love never fails, verse 8, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. I have some dear brothers who make it, who argue from this passage that the perfect is the closing of the canon of Scripture, and therefore these other gifts are done. I think that's saying more than this passage is saying. Now, just because I don't equate it with the canon of Scripture being formed doesn't mean that I hold to a view that I think Revelation is still being given. I think the, the conclusion um, to draw is that it appears that there isn't new Revelation being given. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a cessationist on this point that Scripture is not continuing to be given from a practical side, not from a, a biblical theological side, because I just don't think that's what he's trying to say here. I don't think that was his point in 1 Corinthians 13. I think his point was to show that, indeed, there will come a day when we won't need knowledge, we won't need prophecy, these gifts, like we once had. I don't think necessarily that's what Paul was trying to say, that it was the closing of the canon that did that. That's very convenient for your theological position. And so this is an example, again, where though a camp that I would be in, probably theologically, I want to come back and I want to hold this carefully in my hand, open and say, if this passage says that, I want to believe it. I'm just not convinced that's what it says yet. It is making some type of statement that revelation gifts are going to come to an end. I'm just not sure it says exactly when, if it's really clear to know when the perfect is. Jerome. Scott, that's the, that's, that's the very point I'm trying to figure out here. I mean, you know, yeah. Here you have two guys, uh-huh. you and this one that you really love. Yeah. And you both yeah. are saying, I don't yeah. think it means this, and the other saying, no, right. it means 
this so how do you know how do, you may how not do we as just simple you may not simple people so how can we be I mean, how can we speak on this that, and this is why I go back to what I said to you, that you do everything you possibly can as a man of God with your ability, your situation in life, to learn and become as well-equipped as you possibly can. And at the end of the day, if two very respected men that you love and you uh, love to, to sit under their teaching, one guy says, it's the close of the canon for these exegetical reasons. And another guy says... It's not the close of the canon for these exegetical reasons. The less you know, personally, the more you're just going to have to, I don't know, flip a coin. The more you know, you can say, you know what, I can interact with these ideas a little bit, and I'm more, I think this one is a better one. And you hold to it. And you know what? I, hold, I, think there's, I personally think there's no virtue in, in teaching a position as if two things can be true at the same time. We live in a postmodern day where certainty certainty is, 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 is a mark of arrogance. And I think that is a lie from the pit. I think you can be certain, and I think you can be convinced, and I think you can be humble about it. And so I take a position, and I hold to it. And I might say there are other godly men who have a different position. And I think they're wrong. I teach this. We teach this. We hold to this. Um, I think they're going to heaven. I think they have uh, profitable, valuable ministries. I think God uses them, but I don't agree with them. I think that's okay to say. Um, you know, it, depend, it also is going to depend on, on the very subject you're on. The more closer you get to the center of the gospel and you have differences of opinion, well, you know, you might communicate that a little differently than you would is the canon closer. You know what I'm saying? But that's not going to happen. I, I don't think so. Yeah. Well, it will just take some time to do some study. Yeah. Most things just You just do the best you can. And at some points, Jerome, you're absolutely right. You're going to have guys that you love uh, that you're just, they're not going to agree on how they apply their rules of interpretation. Their exegesis is going to yield different results. And they're both going to be as committed to their controlling line of authority being in the text. And they hold to their convictions solidly. And you're going to go, I don't know which one. And so you equip yourself the best you can so that you can interact and, and make as much of a decision for yourself as you possibly can. I think of MacArthur and Sproul. Yeah. The two of them. And, I mean, they come from really different uh, positions with a lot of things. But yet here you have two guys that do conferences together. Yeah. You know, so the things that they can agree on, yeah. they, they do battle together. Yeah, absolutely right. And yet, at the same time, those two guys could never be elders in the same church. And that's okay. That's a-okay. Um, you say uh, there's benefit as well in um, the things that you had come to a solid conclusion on, uh, keeping those things in mind, and then you go uh, by process of elimination and say, well, I'm not sure what I agree on, but I'm not yeah. can't go to this. Yeah. I don't think that's a that's a that's a good point. Um, I think when I went to seminary, I was taught certain <coughs> um, theological convictions, and I held to them. I, and they appeared to be good reasons to me and, and 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 biblically justified. Had I studied those myself personally, not all of them, and I held to them. Um, 
when I went out, got out of seminary and I went to my first church that I was at where I was a youth pastor, I was very much, um, I, I, I questioned several things that I held to because I saw godly people, godly men in leadership handling God's word in a way that appeared to me to be very, um, the right way to handle scripture and they were coming to different conclusions. And um, some things I, I changed on. Some things I wavered on and came back to later in, in my um, theological growth. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's okay to say, you know, I, I think it would be a-okay for you guys to say, you know, this is what my church teaches on this subject. Um, at this point, um, I haven't studied it thoroughly. I don't have a reason to not believe that. Um, but I need to do more study, and I need to get to the bottom of that myself. I think that's, I think that's the right thing to say. If, you, if you're not sure, don't say you're sure. Um, but, you know, there's we, when we have people go through membership, and they um, look at our theological convictions or our biblical convictions that we have, um, sometimes they're like, wow, you know, I have, this is the first time I'm exposed to that. I've, I've never heard that before. And we say to them, well, let's, let's talk about, um, do you feel like you're in a position where you want to go forward with membership? Well, yeah, I don't see a reason why I wouldn't. And I ask questions like, well, what do you think about the leadership of this church? What's your perception of the leadership of this church? Do you, do you think the leadership is qualified leadership? Godly men, are they humble men? And what do you think of the way that this leadership, how they handle the word of God? Are you comfortable with that? Do you, you know, controlling the line of authority kinds of stuff? Do you see that? And they say, well, yeah, I do. I say, um, well, then I think it's okay for you to go forward, even though you may not have searched this subject out in fullness. Um, and let's go forward since you're comfortable with the way the leadership leads this church and handles the word of God. And let me put some resources in your hand and let's talk together about these and get to the bottom of these things so that you have greater confidence in them yourself personally. Um, there's, a, there's an openness in the body of Christ, in a, in a body of Christ, to have differences of thought that, where development of thought is, is more immature, infantile. Not, and I don't mean that in a demeaning way. I just mean that's just the way that it is. How can, you come into Christ infantile like a immature in your thought. It needs to be developed. And you're not going to be able to be exactly where leadership of a church is on a theological, biblical subject. So don't act like you are there if you're not there. Okay? Can yeah. I ask a question? Sure. To point number seven. Absolutely. Um, and you know where I come from, Scott. Yeah. I don't want to do a rabbit trail here, but in the part at the bottom where you're talking about uh, Genesis 12, 3, Galatians 3, and you say uh, we deal with that part of that blessing, the salvation by grace through faith, how would you... Uh, biblically support that it's just part. Um, yeah, I. I th- do you understand what I'm asking? I think so. Give me, give me another round. Run at it at a different angle, or again, just even if it's saying the same how, thing, I want to make sure I understand. How do you understand? How would you explain that it's part and that it's not the well, your sentences reveal that part, referring to the previous sentence, the yeah. part of it being blessed through, or through Abraham. 
Yeah, the first sentence in Genesis 12:3, God said he would bless all the families of the earth through Abraham, a very general, very broad proposition given. Okay? In Galatians 3, God revealed that part of that very big thing is salvation by grace through faith in Abraham's seed, um, Jesus Christ. Joel is not trying to say that um, that's not the, um, the whole idea that was given to uh, Abraham there did not include, maybe this isn't the best way for him to say this, but he's not trying to say, I think what, what you're concerned about. Um, he's, I think what's being said here is that there were certain specifics, parts of that big blessing that were not revealed yet, parts of it. He's not trying to say, in, in referring to it as a part, that it's a minor piece of it. I mean, salvation by the seed, you know, salvation through the seed, Jesus Christ of Abraham, uh, that's not a, a minor part of it. That's very central to it. But he means that that was a, uh, a portion of it or whatever that just wasn't revealed in Abraham's day, that it was going to come through Messiah. Those thoughts had to be developed and were revealed over time through the prophets and once you get to the New Testament. I don't want to no, that's fine. Go ahead. But in looking at Galatians 3, I see that as being not a part of the blessing, but that being the... Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't disagree with that, and I know Joel well enough to know that he wouldn't disagree with that either. It may not be the best way to have said what he, how he said it here. He's not trying to say... Uh, um, the bigger ideas in Genesis 12:3 and the smaller ideas in Galatians 3. He's not trying to say that. I think what he's trying to say is, um, and again, I'm, I, you know, I wish he was here. We could ask him. But I think what he's trying to say is that the specifics of what was going to happen in Genesis 12:3 did not come until Galatians 3. Um, it's central to it. Yeah. Um, that one part of that verse is actually in the little bit larger context of a blessing. Um, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curse you, I will curse. And then part of verse 3 is, and in you all families of the earth will be blessed. So is he saying that just that one part of verse 3 is the one he's trying to reference? Here's, here's what I would do. Here's the correction I would make in what he said to, to cover and to eliminate what your concern is. I would say in that second sentence in that paragraph, in Galatians 3, God revealed that, take part of that out and just put the word the in, God revealed that the blessing is salvation by grace through faith in Abraham's seed, Jesus Christ. Then you've got it. That avoids any sense of he's trying to say something that is uncomfortable in that. And I think that's a good point, Kurt. I appreciate that. Um, I'll have to email him, tell him he fell short. <laughs> uh, he'll appreciate that. Um, all right, where do we leave off? Where were we at? Ron number eight. Oh, let me. Um, we did we finish um, all of number seven? I'm sorry, guys. This is more. I'm saying my mind's out. I don't even remember what I just said. Um, we're still on progressive revelation, right? Top of the oh, top of page, top of the page on page eight. 
When studying Old Testament passages, we must take care to not read into them more than the author could have known. Once we have established the author's meaning in his historical context, it is appropriate to fill that out with later revelation. However, those two steps must be kept separate. In fact, I would refer you back to the, the quote I gave you last time from House on Old Testament theology and New Testament theology. And you, let, you must let, develop the Old Testament theology on its own and then the New Testament theology and then incorporate them together at the right time, uh, not forcing one back on the other. For instance, I think this is a... To me, this is a pretty clear one, um, although that we have some dear brothers who, who disagree strongly with this. I think the idea of taking the word church in the New Testament and pushing it back into Old Testament passages is not, not, a, responsible state, not a responsible move to make because it's not there. Um, that's not to say that God didn't have a people that he worked with in the Old Testament. He did. And that's not to say that he didn't redeem through a substitute sacrifice, by faith, looking, anticipating for the, the ultimate sacrifice to come and forming a people of his own nature. There's, there's all kinds of opportunities in the New Testament, like Peter, where he takes Old Testament language and he applies it. Um, you are a holy people. You, you are a, a, a kingdom of priests. You are this. But that doesn't mean that they are exactly the same, that every term used in the Old Testament should be used to reference those people in the New Testament. And every term used in the New Testament to revert Uh, referred to those believers, should be put back on the other. Uh, You need to let each text stand and just refer to the people as they are and then put it all together. Um, So... Scott, do you think there are times, though, like I'm thinking specifically of Hebrews 8, where he says, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Um, And I, I would not look at that as the nation of Israel. Yeah. Uh, you see what you said, I'm so, yeah. so Israel, I would equate that to the church. Yeah, and I wouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> I, because I think the promise, especially when you go back to Jeremiah, um, if you believe that there is one meaning, what you just did, in my humble opinion, is you have just given two meanings to a passage. Because when it was written in Jeremiah, um, and when he unfolded that, he is very specific to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Okay, um, and so he is saying to them, if I, if I believe that an author has an intended meaning for an audience, um, his intended meaning to them was not Gentile someday who would believe. Because if he wanted to say that, he could have, but he didn't. But he is here equating it to the new covenant, which mm-hmm. is Absolutely. with the church. Yeah, and the question comes, is he, in referring to Israel in... By quoting that passage, is he automatically equating them? I don't think you have any other testament or New Testament passage that does that. Jesus doesn't even do that. He says, "This is a new covenant in my blood that is um, that, that brings about the forgiveness of sin." I think what's going on. My, my general way of explaining that, as far as I understand, is that a promise was made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah um, through Jeremiah and Ezekiel that a new covenant will be made with them. Um, and that promise is, is coming. It is, a, it is an anticipated prophetic announcement. It appears that when Messiah came, that he says when, in the Passover meal that this cup is the blood, um, is the new covenant in my blood. So he's announcing something of the new covenant is taking place. 
as we watch what gets unfolded, is now the mystery that nobody could have ever saw. Jeremiah didn't see it. Paul makes it clear. Jeremiah didn't understand the mystery of what was going to happen. No prior generation could understand. Now, what we see then is those who believe, Jew and Gentile alike, are united into one body through the blood of Christ, and new covenant application is made to their life. It's very interesting that um, you don't see Paul using new heart language very clearly uh, in, in other New Testament writers in the New Testament. You see new creation. You see uh, a new man and things like that. So there are, there's an application that is made to Gentiles who believe in the church where there is a, a, a new identity that has come through the new covenant. I think that that is its own meaning that is given through the mystery of the church in the New Testament. That meaning stands, and the meaning in the Old Testament stands also. There's an application of that new covenant that we didn't see coming, that Isaiah could, or Jeremiah couldn't see coming, and it fleshes itself out in the church, but that doesn't mean that necessarily that Jeremiah's intent, God's intent through Jeremiah is only and applied into the church, end of story, period, that there's not a future fulfillment yet to come for Israel. I think Romans 9 to 11 makes it very clear that God has uh, a plan for Israel yet. Uh, you, can't, you have to do some serious mental gymnastics and, and gra- grammatical gymnastics in Romans 9 to 11 to equate the Gentiles with the Jews there. Uh, just language doesn't work that way, in my opinion. But we'll, we'll, have to sit down over we'll do that. <laughs> good. Those are good conversations to have. Um, all right, let's talk about interpretation versus application. There is a difference. We talked about this last time together as well. Interpretation finds the meaning the original author intended in his historical situation. The application is the various ways that one meaning can be lived out. For example, Jesus said, love one another. Now, a wife might read that and say, that means, that means, that means, see that? That means I need to love my husband better. However, is that really the meaning? If it is, her husband is going to have some trouble fulfilling that command because he doesn't have a husband. And if there is, uh, and if that is the meaning, that wife might get upset when other women in the church try to love her husband better too. Okay, so this is a, kind of a silly example, but the point is that's a sloppy use of the word mean, meaning. That means when she says, well, the way that I apply that is I should love my husband better. So you can see the point. The meaning of John 15 12 is a command for the disciples to exhibit a self-sacrificial concern for others. You might be able to stretch that to apply to how a wife is to relate to her husband. However, that application is definitely not the meaning of the passage. Um, find a better passage to support, if you want to, uh, your love for your uh, husband, if you're a wife. Interpretation and application must always be kept separate. Here is one way to do that. Let's assume you're studying Romans 12, 1 to 2. Rewrite in your own words these two verses and start every sentence with the words Paul said. Paul said, Paul said. Make sure you write only what Paul actually said to the Romans in that verse. That is the interpretation. It was written by an author to an audience and you need to get that meaning for that group of people. From that interpretation, you can develop an appropriate application to your present situation. He gives an example, Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world. Now watch this wrong approach, how it's just a big swirl altogether of interpretation or meaning and application. It's just all, you can't even separate. It's just like this swirl of ice cream. 
To me, that means we shouldn't watch television. In fact, this verse means all television is evil. If you own a television, you're not a Christian. That's what Paul said to the Romans, you know. You laugh, but I mean, Christians do that. We do that. The right approach would be something like this. Interpretation. Paul said the Roman believers should not follow the same patterns of thinking and living unbelievers do. Application. Something that influences me to think like an unbeliever is watching television. To keep from being conformed to worldly thinking, I think, um, thinking I should be more discerning about what I watch on television or even avoid watching television altogether. Application. Okay? You want to separate the two. You want, you want two clear, crisp steps that separate meaning and application. Okay? When you do that, if you labor to think of two crisp steps, you will prevent yourself from making some serious errors. Okay? Interpretation, what Paul said and meant, is distinct from how you're to act based on what he said. One interpretation can lead to many legitimate applications. Just make sure you actually find the one meaning of the text before you start multiplying applications. Number nine, grammar and syntax. A verse does not say more or less than what the rules of language make it say. It might be qualified by the context, but the real meaning of the text is found in what the passage says according to the normal use, uh, usage of language. Um, so again, the real meaning of the text is found in what the passage says. The, cur- the controlling line of authority is down in the text. Let me give an example. Uh, if you go to Ephesians 1, Paul is in a pattern, and you would, you would at this point in, in where you guys, many of you guys are at, you would be dependent upon another, uh, somebody with an equipping who could help you see this. Um, you'd have to depend on them. But Paul is in a pattern of stating the main idea or the main verbal idea, and then he follows that verbal idea with prepositional phrases. He doesn't appear in chapter 1 to start with prepositional phrases which modify the following verbal idea. Okay? So, for instance, in verse 4, and and this is evident in our English versions because we don't know what to do with the last prepositional phrase, in love. Okay? Okay? Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now watch this. Where's the main verb? He chose us. Notice what follows. Prepositional phrase. In him. It's describing how he chose us. Um, Before the foundation of the world. Another prepositional phrase. Modifying main verb. Now a purpose clause. That we would be holy and blameless before him. Prepositional phrase. Before him modifying the the verbal idea that we would be. Okay? Now you have the prepositional phrase, in love. Now, the NAS puts a period and puts in love as a beginning of the next sentence, but keeps it with verse 4 and then verse 5. So the idea is, it's almost schizophrenic. It's a new sentence, but it's still part of verse 4. And so is it in love he predestined us? Well, if you follow the pattern of what Paul is doing, the in love still goes with the idea that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. So no period, no capital I beginning. The in love sticks with the the verbal idea before it. So, look, that's just grammatical. That's the way Paul is using his grammar, and it has a meaning. Is it a significant meaning, change, indifference? If you put in love, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love? Compared to in love he predestined us? Yeah, that's significant. You're, in one, you're saying his predestinating work that he does is done in love. 
Is that theologically true? Absolutely. But the question is, is that what Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 is teaching? And I don't think it is, because I think grammatically what he's doing is he's taking the prepositional phrases, and he's, they follow the main verb. And so in love needs to go with the, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Um, so again, not, not major, I mean, that doesn't change any doctrine that you have anywhere, but it's, it's an important conclusion to make. Dave? Would, would that um, be a reason why you would pick a specific Bible? So they have in love with the, that would be holy and blameless. The, the in is well, the period after well, it says be holy and blameless in his sight. Period, capital I in love he predestined us. Yeah. So it's opposite of the NAS. No, that's what the NAS has too. Oh, it's just that the NAS has in love in verse four. Do they have in love in verse five? No. No. It's exactly the same. Okay. Would that make a difference? I mean, if I could find a. a Translation that, that did that on all those kinds of things, yeah, but you, you'll never find one. So, and, and you've got to remind yourself that, you know, verses, verse markings and all that didn't come, and periods and punctuation didn't come until much later. And so they are interpretive decisions made by good men in centuries past, and so you just need to do the best you can. Mike? That seems, uh, why would they put a, a verse marker there? I mean, like they added a period there. I have no idea. I have no idea. That's why you have to hold very loosely. If you're going to study, if you're going to study, one of the first things you should do is, is just go to like Bible Gateway or go to go to a text of the Bible, copy and paste it into a Word document, and then take out all the verses where they're marked out. Just take them out, chapter endings, and, and just take those out, and just look at a running paragraph of words, and then deal with them on that basis. That will be helpful to you. Because there are many many times where you'll be like, why is that a chapter break right there? Um, and and this is where you're going to need to rely on, on some you know gifted men who are able to study the Bible and who know the languages, and you're going to need to lean on them to help you make observations like that. Damien. Uh, but does that change anything? Yeah, I mean, you, what you're saying, the difference is, is that you're saying... Um, if, if it goes where I, I think it should go, what, what's being said there, that God's purpose in choosing us was that we would be holy and blameless in his presence in love. His idea is our holiness and blameless before him is saturated with love. That's the one meaning. Yeah, that's a good question. You have to make that interpretive decision. And I, I think it's probably um, his love for us and, our, and or our love for him. I think it's more of a vertical love. But, you know, you'd have to make those decisions. I'd have to go back and look and see what I did on that. The other difference is Paul is saying he predestined us in love. That's a whole other different subject. Both of them are theologically true. Yeah, it, it doesn't change our doctrine. Both of them are theologically true. The question you have to discern is that is this passage, which one is this passage teaching? Okay? Grammar matters. Yes? Is there... Would it be fair to say that you always have to establish context first when it comes to grammar and syntax? Um, what do you mean by that? Yes, I would agree with that on a... On a on context a, is king. I mean, it seems to me that context trumps everything. Yeah. And, and what are you thinking in regards to, like, Ephesians 1 on that? Or, or was well, it tied well, to Ephesians 1? There's just, nothing I disagree with. I'm, yeah. just, I'm just saying that it, it, in looking... It, like he has here... Um, it might be qualified by the context. And to me, it would seem like it's always 
Um, where was that at? I'm trying to find myself. Number nine, number nine. Oh, yeah, number nine. Maybe I'm just looking at it wrong. Just the way I've always yeah. looked at it, context. Yeah, and he he said that very clearly back on, yeah. on number six. So I don't think he's trying to say anything um, different there, that it might be. Um, you know, it, it, yeah, I don't know. What do you, what do you, what do you meant by that there? So. And I got two things. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I'll just give you his email. You can talk to him. Uh, number 10. Historical appropriateness. One of the great dangers a Bible student faces is reading a modern view of a word or concept into a biblical one. Um, For example, one well-known Christian psychologist today defines one of Paul's words for the mind in Romans in terms of the Freudian unconscious mind. Probably the ego. I think is what he was talking about. He refers that here. The unconscious mind, the id, the superego, and so on, are the manufacture of modern psychology it is historically inappropriate to read those modern secular concepts back into Paul's statements. Um, ego in Greek means I. Okay? Um, ego. To read into that word everything that Freud said ego is, is what is called totality transfer. Totally transferring a 21st century meaning into a first century word. The Freudian concept of human beings simply didn't exist in Paul's day. So always make sure your interpretation is appropriate to the historical situation of the text. Let me give you three examples that you also have to be careful with. (coughs) Some of you um, will start to, uh, you may do this already, you may use lexicons, which are um, uh, not little green men that run around on St. Patrick's Day. A lexicon is a a word dictionary of the the ancient languages. Um, And it... There are, two, there are different families of, of, of Greek. You've got Koine Greek that the Bible was written in, and then you have Classical Greek that um, exists separate. They're, they're very, there's lots of similarities, but they exist at different uh, times, and they, the way that language developed over time, even though there might be similar words that are used in one Classical Greek over to Koine Greek, doesn't mean that because it meant this in Classical Greek, it automatically means this in uh, New Testament Greek. So you have to be really careful about when you're reading through your lexicons and it says, oh, because man, I tell you what, if you look at enough lexicons, you can make a word mean anything you want it to mean. And what you have to be very careful with is that you don't go to something like classical Greek and say, oh, I love, that's so clear. It's awesome. Paul meant, it might be, the word might have never changed. But the way that you confirm that is not by you looking at a classical lexicon, classical Greek lexicon. You determine that by looking at the New Testament usage of that word in particular, the way Paul used that word. Another example. Um, Today we have an appropriately negative connotation concerning slavery. Our country has a very negative, bad past in regards to what slavery is. So that when we think of slavery, we think of human rights violations, we think of horrible things being done to people, treating people as if they are animals, uh, property merely. If we take that meaning today and import it back into Paul's mind when he's writing, we are going to find ourselves at odds with the way that Paul thinks of slavery because Paul's not trying to address that kind of slavery necessarily. Did that exist at certain places and certain times in the Roman Empire? Absolutely. 
But we think two-thirds, basically, of the Roman citizenry were slaves. You would sell yourself into slavery because you could make a better living as a slave than you could otherwise. You could buy your way out of your slavery. There are ways out of slavery that, you know, blacks didn't have out in our slavery at all. So you just have to be careful to not totally transfer our understanding of a word back into an Old Testament or a New Testament word. Another example I'll give you from the spring of um, 09. Um, I was listening to Rick Warren talk on how to do short-term missions. And in Luke 10.4, Jesus says, carry no money belt. Right? He told his disciples that he sent out, carry no money belt with you. Um, What Rick Warren was talking about was he said, you know, our modern-day missions has so ruined the people that we've gone to. Because our American way of doing missions is we go and we throw money at it. We give money to indigenous peoples and we think that's going to solve the problem. And we just we end up creating a, 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 an unhealthy spiritual dependence on our, our money that we give. And you know, by the way, Jesus said, carry no money belt. And what is that? That's taking a modern day example of how we've done missions very poorly and it has pushed it back into what Jesus said to his disciples as he sent them out. What Jesus intended was saying, take no money belt. It's not the same thing that Warren says missions is. Now, I happen to agree with Warren. I think that it's true. We've really ruined missions by just throwing money at problems. But that's not what Jesus meant. Right? So you just want to be careful with your um, historical appropriateness. Number 11, word study. To understand a passage of scripture, key words within that passage must be defined accurately as illustrated just above. To do this, it is helpful to consider the other uses of that word in the scripture. So this is very important. So if you want to look at a word that Paul is using, first, you do it by the same author. You go to how Paul uses that word in other letters, or even in the same letter you're in. How does Paul use, uh, for instance, in, in Ephesians, whenever he uses the word Lord, it always, in Ephesians, means Jesus, Messiah. Uh, that's just the way that he is in, in Ephesians. He's very careful to use that word that way. In other uh, letters that Paul writes, he might use the word Lord and be referring to God the Father. So your context is going to determine, but you want to look first at the author. How does the author use the word in the immediate letter that I'm in, or book that I'm in, and then I can expand to other books that he's written or other letters he's written, and then I can go beyond that to other New Testament writers and, and so forth. If there are multiple meanings, the immediate context determines which meaning the author intended in your passage. Uh, so there, there's an example of where a context is king. If you are working in the New Testament, the Old Testament background of the word must always be considered too, because what passage and what was informing the theological and word understanding of the New Testament writer? The way the Old Testament is. So you need to be able to check that as well. So Scott, does the uh, word Lord is it in cap or not all in cap? In the Old Testament, um, it does. If it's in all caps, it's the word Yahweh. It's the, the personal name for God, Yahweh. Um, there are, there's the word, the Hebrew word Adonai, which is also translated Lord. And when you see that translated capital L, then lowercase O-R-D, that's not Yahweh. That's the only way in the New Testament or in the English you can understand the difference between it. Sometimes you'll see the word God, capital G, capital O, capital D. And that's because, and that's the word Yahweh. And the reason they did that is because the, the Hebrew is um, Yahweh Adonai. So what are you going to do? Lord, Lord, all capital L, 
capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, and then lowercase L-O-R-D? No, what they do is they, they take Yahweh in that one, and they translate it as God, capital G, capital O, capital D, and then Lord for um, Adonai and capitalize it. And that's only a few times, but if you watch as you read, you can come across that. New Testament doesn't do it that way. Lord just meant, at that point, you really have to decide uh, in your context, especially like in um, the Gospels. Uh, someone can say Lord and not mean Jesus Christ, not mean God. They, can, they just mean Master, Sir. So you have to let your context determine how the word is used. Is God yeah. Um, did the Greeks look at that that same way? The, the word Lord. Um, I don't know how they did it with theirs. I think no, they would have they would have trans they would have been transcribed or. Uh, Y H W H or how we do it, Yahweh. John the Baptist says, "Prepare the way for the Lord." And when you look at the Old Testament, that's Yahweh. Prepare the way for Yahweh. But he says, "Lord." So, how would you, uh, how would they understand that? Um, I think just that way. That um, uh, by by Jesus' day, they they weren't pronouncing Yahweh. They were just saying. Because they they would say they would say Lord, they're kurios. They would use their Greek word um, because that was too precious of a of a word to use, and so they wouldn't do that. Um, so they they would see it that way, but they would just have an, an equivalent Greek word to translate it. Yes. How important would you say it is for a person to understand Greek or Hebrew to know Greek? Or I think we live in probably one of the most amazing periods of Christian history in that we have as many good translations as we do in English. Um, you do not need to know Greek or Hebrew to um, get um, at the heart of what God is trying to reveal. There will be some places that you'll, you'll, you'll be limited. But, but for instance, if you took... New King James Version, the NAS, the NIV, and the ESV, and you put them together and you looked at your passage when you study. In fact, one of our elders studies the Bible this way. Um, he'll take the New King James, put next to it the ESV, and put the NAS next to it and the NIV, and then he'll watch where they differ. Huh, here's where they differ. That tells you that there's a difference in English translators on what was going on there. It's probably something I need to look at. And examine, and then you can start to go to some other resources and be able to do that. It, it, if you guys never get to Greek or Hebrew, you are, are blessed. You will be fine in terms of what you can understand from Scripture. That's the whole point of this. I told you guys about this, that Joel, as a pastor in South Africa, in Pretoria, South Africa, knows that his men will never get beyond an eighth grade education in English. They will never learn Greek. They will never learn Hebrew. So he's going to equip them the best that they can with English to be able to understand the word of God. And again, our translations are excellent translations, better than any other period of time that Christians had in in the past. However, if you think you can and you have the desire and you have the knack for it, I say go for it. Get it if you can. Why not? Because it will only equip you to do what you know, I was referring to, you know, Jerome, you earlier. It will help you because a guy's going to quote Greek and he's going to say in this realm, you know, as you look at this Greek phrase, that's why I have my conclusion. 
the more you can interact with that, the more you can go, yeah, that's right. Or, uh, that's kind of fishy. And uh, the more equipped you are, the more you're able to interact with that on your own. Um, you'll probably never be a Greek scholar or a Hebrew scholar. Um, but if you have the opportunity to do it, do so. Uh, there, it, it's helpful to have a working understanding of it if you can, but it's not essential. Yeah. Um, however, today there are also many excellent... Oh, I skipped this sentence there. You can accomplish much in word study with just an exhaustive English concordance and some persistence. If you look at every use of a word, you'll naturally see its range of meanings, its nuances, and its different contexts. However, today there are also many excellent usable lexicons, theological word books, and commentaries that provide scholarly explanations of biblical words for the average Bible student. Get them and use them. Let me give an example. Uh, Jesus said... Many are called, but few are chosen, right? And Paul uses the word called in Romans 8 in a way that would put you at odds with what Jesus, how he used the word called, same, same verb in Matthew, or wherever he is in Matthew, yeah, Matthew 22, 14. Um, that is not a technical term. Called is not a technical term. It doesn't mean the same thing always, rigidly, no matter who uses it. Your context determines the meaning. And that one, Jesus means the gospel call. The, the call of the gospel goes out to many, but few are chosen. Paul, in Romans 8, uses call in terms of the call of salvation, the salvation's call, God's call in salvation. Two different uses of the word call. You have to let your context determine that for you. Okay. Uh, the word flesh is a good example. John 1, uh, the word became flesh. So God became sinful tendency. Because that's the way Paul uses the word flesh. Or flesh can have a range of meaning. And you have to decide your context determines what it means. You understand? Is that the word flesh? Is that the same uh -huh. Greek? Mm -hmm. It is. Yeah. So you have, to, um, you have to hold on to those and let your context determine. Are technical terms... I don't, you know, I was asking myself that question um, earlier this morning as I was just reviewing again. Yeah, are technical terms common? I don't think there's a whole bunch of them. There are some that uh, might mean the same thing, and I'll, I'll see if I can get to the bottom of that, where, how many are. I haven't come across very many, so um, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. But. You know one? I'm tempted to say propitiation is, but I'm not sure. That's how uncommon I think they are. <laughs> like, like maybe there's one. But, I, but I, I, there, there has to be because there, there well, there doesn't have to be. Not, but I, I'm, I'm pretty sure there is. I would just, they, I think they're rare. Um, let's, let's finish up here. Number twelve, checking principle. It's good for a student to check his understanding of a passage against the interpretation of, interpretations of Bible scholars, scholars from the ages of Christianity. It is impossible for us to know all of the geographic, historical, interpretational issues in a passage, information Bible scholars spend a lifetime accumulating. Bible dictionaries, commentators, uh, commentaries, and other Bible study tools can shorten that process from a lifetime to five minutes. And that's very two. And note a uh, true. That's... Um, Man, you can save yourself a ton of time by having a, a, a good commentary that's dependable, uh, helpful. And notice that this principle is last on the list. It's number 12. There's a reason for that. 
As a rule, it's best to do your own study on a passage and then compare it with someone else's. Sometimes you'll need to use Bible dictionaries and or commentaries early in the process to get a handle on a certain word or a theological concept, or also to even help you understand a grammatical connection, like how does verse 3 connect to verse 4? I just don't understand that. And you might have to go to a commentator who's going to help you solve that earlier than later so that you can be on a track of thought that's, uh, that's going to move more smoothly. Um, that's advisable. However, avoid the trap of opening a commentary and reading it as if it were the Bible. Okay? Uh, your best thing to do is take your passage and just examine it, read it 50 times, examine it, examine it, examine it. Uh, the more equipped you can get grammatically in terms of how words are used and uh, parts of speech, and that's what H3 is all about next year. Um, man, I'll tell you, the guys right now are all on retreat and who are in H3, uh, all preaching to each other their 20-minute sermons of what they've been working on all year. Uh, I was with George Siegel, uh, you know, the last 10 days as we were in Spain and Italy, and he, he was doing Titus 3. And that's why I wanted to read it this morning, because we were talking a lot about that. And, and um, he diagrammed it and spent most of his time on it on his own. And then he also went to other passages or other commentaries and things to, to help him out. And guys, I'm telling you, just what you can notice on your own, just with English, is huge. It's huge. So don't rush off to other resources right away. Sometimes you'll need to go to one sooner than later. My, my rule of thumb is a commentary is a tool that helps me observe the text. A commentary is not um, a short step away from my sermon. I'm not going to the commentary because then I'll have my sermon. I'm going to a commentary because I need some help observing a text. And that's what you want to do. You want to use your commentaries, your lexicons to help you observe the text. So work on a passage all you can. Look up specific words or concepts you don't understand. And once you've done all you can to process a text, then go to good commentaries. Fill in the gaps and corrections. Um, use the checking principle. It will save your interpretational life. Um, if you come up with an interpretation of a passage in which you look in as many commentaries as you can find, and nobody else has come up with that in Christian history, <laughs> you probably want to be careful <laughs> with that. Just tell me. Um, but you can do a lot more than you guys think, okay? Now, why are there 12 uh, princ uh, principles of interpretation? Because that's what Joel picked. That's what he picked. There's 12 hours in a day. There's 12 dozen eggs. There's 12 apostles. There's 12 months in a year. Because that's what he picked. You can pick others. That's right. Let's talk about what's important. Now, let me um, let me remind you of a couple things. Um, what you guys have in front of you is something this big. It's a whole study booklet. What follows after that is um, five tips for interpreting biblical narrative. Uh, narrative is like the Gospels, uh, Old Testament history, uh, the book of Acts. It's not teaching, didactic teaching. Um, and narrative is, is, is kind of its own animal that you want to make sure you have a good understanding that just because biblical history is being recorded, and it says that Jephthah sacrificed his daughter, um, and then it doesn't say what you would love for it to say, parentheses, and by the way, this is wrong. 
It's just recording history. And it's not saying, thus go do likewise. You need to be very thoughtful about how you understand and narrative. So that, that's what follows. Uh, he, he walks through Hebrew poetry. Uh, then section two is, study, you don't have this in your study methods, is uh, learning to read carefully. He goes through why talking about, um, why do we want to study grammar and syntax? And so, syntax, and so he's going to now start talking through words and how words function in a sentence, the parts of sentence, um, how groups of words function in a sentence or a paragraph. There are phrases, there are clauses, there are sentences, paragraphs. He then gives you all kinds of assignments, different things to go through. And again, if you want this, whole thing, just email me, tell me you want it, and I'll email it to you in a PDF. Some of you have done that already. Have you guys, did you get yours from Cass? Okay, so I just want to make sure that you're getting it. As I saw them, um, I just kind of forward it to Cass and say, hey, get this to so-and-so. But send me an email or email Cass and ask for this whole deal and you can get it, okay? Yeah, that won't download. If you want it like this, you got to figure out how to do that yourself. <laughs> Apple does it. <laughs> As a p- <laughs> but if you got an iPad, there's an app for that. It'll do it for you. Guys, thank you for letting me just kind of run straight through everything today. I, I appreciate your uh, your endurance um, for being able to sit there. What we're going to do in two weeks, we have one more of, of these that I, I want to do on, on hermeneutics. And I haven't decided exactly what we're going to do. We're either going to do... Um, we're going to trace, um, it's either going to focus, well, either way, it's going to focus on progressive revelation. That you want to take a passage and let it speak in its context in the Old Testament, but then you also need to pay attention that the other revelation has come. And so each individual passage has its own meaning, and it stands on its own, and then other passages come. And we're going to look at that one of two different ways, or two different ways, I haven't decided how we're going to put that together. One of the ways that we can do that is by tracing the word of key theological words like Sabbath or rest. And what that does is help you understand rest in the Old Testament. And as it works itself out, and then as you get to the New Testament, how it's used for rest uh, in the New Testament. Or I might take two examples from from Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 6, and how Paul used the Old Testament to help you see the different ways that... um, New Testament revelation stands together with Old Testament revelation. Does a New Testament meaning override an Old Testament meaning as it appears in its original context? So either way, it's going to deal with progressive revelation, and we'll walk through that a little bit together. So that is it. No small groups today. Sorry about that. Um, But let's pray, okay? Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word, and what we want more than anything, Lord, is we want to be well-equipped to study your word, not because we just merely love words, not merely because we love theological concepts and biblical ideas, but we want to be able to handle your word carefully and well because we love you, because that is where you have revealed yourself most clearly, is in the Bible. And so we confess, Lord, that the only reason we love you is because you first loved us and you changed us to love you. Before all I ever loved was myself, and I loved my sin, and I loved rebellion and disobedience. And in Jesus Christ, you transformed me. You transformed these men. And you gave them new appetites and new desires, new loves. Primarily you, you are the one who is at the top of the list of love. 
of loves in these men's lives. And so we want to handle your word well and accurately so that we might get you, the God that we love, in the Bible. Father, help us to um, grow in our understanding and in our ability, our equipping to handle your word. For our own souls will then benefit and the lives of those around us and under us in ministry and in our families will benefit as well too. Help us to handle accurately your word of truth. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen.